You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. As you recall, last week we considered his glorious doctrine of justification by faith. And Paul taught us this doctrine to tell us, especially, that we now have every reason to rejoice no matter what we're going through in this life. But now, in verses 10 to 11, he's focusing on the consequence of justification. What does life look like as the justified? So Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul says this, That I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he write his word upon our hearts uh, this evening. Well, there is much consternation in life that can come when we have the wrong expectations. If you have too high of expectations in various spheres of our life, we're inevitably going to be disappointed. On the other hand, if we have too low of expectations, we may fear missing out on things we may not have otherwise missed out on. In fact, growth and maturity, growth and wisdom in this age, oftentimes you could often describe as a growth in knowing what our expectations should be, a right orientation of our expectations. Well, similarly, we can struggle to know what our expectations should be in the Christian life. As I mentioned last week, Paul took us to the very mountaintop of the Christian life as he explained for us this great doctrine of justification by faith. But now, he's saying, well, what does life look like as the justified? To put it another way, you know, we all know what to expect on the wedding day when it comes to marriage. It's a time of joy and festivity and celebration. But what does the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years look like? A little bit more difficult. Well, in our day and age, there are almost as many definitions as definers when it comes to what our expectations should be in the Christian life. And there are a lot of definers. You have those who say that we should really expect a life of ease, health, wealth, and prosperity. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those who say we should not only expect, but actually seek hardship and suffering. Almost a monastic-like simplicity. And then you have everything in between. So what does the Christian life look like? Well, this is an area that the Philippians themselves needed instruction on. As you recall from last week, there were false teachers in Philippi who were seeking to not only lead the Philippians away astray when it comes to their salvation, their justification before a holy God, but also their life of sanctification, their Christian life. The Philippians themselves were in dire need of instruction, teaching on what to expect as the justified. So what is the Christian life? 
Well, Paul tells us, according to this passage, that the Christian life is a life in which we seek to know Christ more and more. That's really the main idea that Paul lays out before us, that the Christian life is a life in which we seek to know Christ more and more. This is the expectation that he gives us. The inevitable question that arises then is what does it mean and what does it look like to know Christ? Knowing Christ is uh, a broad term. It's not very specific. Well, verses, the rest of verses 10 through 11 tell us, describe for us what it means to know Christ more and more in this life. It first begins by knowing Christ in suffering. So it begins by knowing Christ in suffering. And this is what Paul says explicitly for us at the end of verse 10. So if you look with me in your Bibles, the end of verse 10, Paul says, And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul clearly sees suffering, hardships, as an integral part of the life of a Christian. So what is suffering? If it's such an integral part, we need to know what suffering is. I think for most of us, when we hear this idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings, being conformed into the death of Christ, we think of those sufferings that explicitly come our way because we are Christians. You may think of martyrs in the faith, or financial hardship that comes your way because you are targeted at work as a Christian. Those things which are explicitly tied to you being a member of Christ. However, if this is all that Paul has in mind, this passage is actually quite irrelevant to most of us. Because I would imagine that most of us, if not all of us, have not really experienced all that much suffering. That's explicitly tied to us being a Christian. Now, this is not to denigrate those brothers and sisters who have. Maybe uh, it's you or other individuals in other countries. The Bible esteems these individuals high. But all I want to do is simply ask the question, is there more to this category of the sufferings of Christ than the sufferings that are explicitly tied to us being Christians and professing faith in this world? I think, I believe, Paul says yes to that question. And to be upfront, this evening we're going to go to a few other passages more so than, than normal, because what Paul says here in these short two verses, he explains further in greater detail in a couple other uh, passages for us. So to begin with, in Romans 8, 17 through 23, Paul explains for us what, what does he mean by this term, the sufferings of Christ. And you can just listen along or you can turn there, whatever uh, you prefer. But in Romans 8, 17... We see him explaining this term for us. So Romans 8.17 says this. He's talking about our adoption as the children of God. And he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Notice that he's talking about the sufferings of Christ. We have to suffer with him. And Paul's not saying that our suffering is a condition for our adoption, as if we need to suffer a certain amount and then we are welcomed into the family of God. 
That's not what he's saying. He's talking about what the life of a child of God consists of. He's reorientating our expectations. Boys and girls, it's sort of like I would imagine you have some household chores to do at home. And you do those chores not in order to become a member of your family. I mean, that sounds crazy. You do it because you are a member of the family. And therefore, you have certain obligations, responsibilities. This is what Paul's saying. We should expect suffering as a child of God. Well, again, what, what are these sufferings of, of Christ of this present time? Well, verses 18 to 23, we see that the sufferings of the present time will continue until the redemption of our bodies. That's the second coming of Christ. This age is an age of suffering. It's an age of suffering. Paul goes even further. He says, even creation itself has been subjected to these, these sufferings, these sufferings of this present time. Therefore, it would seem to tell us that the sufferings of Christ are all those things we experience in this life because we live in a fallen world. So it's those sufferings that are tied not so much because we're Christians. I mean, it includes that. But it also includes those sufferings because we're human beings in a fallen world. Those things that all we can really chalk up to is the fact that the common curse is present and is continuing. The world is not how it should be. Well, furthermore, Paul in our passage is, is saying that these are sharing in Christ's sufferings. I think we would do well to consider what Christ's sufferings were when he lived on this earth. If you recall back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we considered this great example of Christ's humility, which really is another way to, to speak about his sufferings. That Christ came as a human being in this fallen world, his incarnation, but then he took on this mindset of a servant, and then lastly he went all the way to the cross and died for us. However, when we think of the, the sufferings of Christ, we usually immediately think of the cross. But we also have to realize this incarnation in a fallen world is part of the sufferings of Christ. The fact that he grew thirsty and hungry and experienced sorrow and the difficulty of interacting and living with sinful human beings, these were all hardships that he experienced and thus were part of his sufferings. Therefore, if sufferings that are tied only to living in a fallen world are part of the sufferings of Christ, they also our hardships that are only tied to living in a fallen world also are the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, when we come back to chapter 3, verse 10, as Paul again tells us that we know Christ as we share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Yes, this includes those trials and suffering that may come upon us because we are Christians. We don't want to denigrate that. But it also includes all the hardships that we experience because we live in a fallen world. A fallen world that's been subjected to the common curse. Therefore, hardships that arise not just because you're a Christian, but because you're a human being in a fallen world. Those are the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if you have faith, you are a member of Christ. You have been united to our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything that you do are in this life, all the sufferings that you are subjected to, you experience those as a member of Christ's body, as a member of Christ himself. Therefore, whatever you're struggling with this evening, whether it's big, whether it's small, 
could be health issues. It could be relational strain, financial hardship, even just fatigue and stress with life. Whatever it is, whatever hardship it is, that is the way in which you are being conformed to Christ's death. Sharing in Christ's suffering. Paul would have us know there is no second-class suffering. All of these things are the sufferings of Christ. Let me remind you of chapter 129. I mentioned this when we went through this text. But Paul says that not only faith, but suffering itself is this gracious bestowal of God upon us. And yet suffering in some sense is a gift of God. Again, he's not the author of evil, but he is the one who foreordains whatever comes to pass. And that tells us that we do not seek out suffering. Suffering is not something that we seek out. Or is it something that we need to feel guilty about if we feel like we've led a pretty easy life compared to others? Because God is the one who has ordained the path that we will walk in our earthly pilgrimage. And some of us, our path is steep, has rough terrain. Others, it's a little bit more smooth. It's relatively easy terrain. But again, we have to recognize that it is our Heavenly Father who has chosen that path for our good, for our conformity into our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know Christ didn't suffer. It's not necessarily good news to begin with, but that's not the whole story. Paul would have us ask the question, is there anything more going on in our suffering than this? And he would say, yes, there's a lot more going on in our suffering. Paul now says at the beginning of verse 10 that we know Christ not only in suffering, but we know Christ in power. We know Christ in power. In fact, in the power of his resurrection. We know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Now, Christ rose from the dead to demonstrate, to testify to the whole world that he not only was a true and perfect man, but he also was true God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of our resurrection. Paul's playing on an idea that goes back to Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel would give to God the first fruits of their crops. And that first fruits signified the rest of the harvest, the rest of the crops. It all belonged to God. The first fruits was a representative of everything else. It all belonged to God. Christ, then, is our representative, and his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Not only our future bodily resurrection, which we all will experience on the last day, but also our inward resurrection. The Bible tells us that we experience two resurrections. Future bodily resurrection, but also an inward resurrection. And if you have faith, you've already experienced that inward resurrection. That's our regeneration. Where God himself brings to life this new man. And though it's not complete in this life, he begins that work, that inward renewal in our hearts and lives. And that inward resurrection, that new man that's been born again in our hearts, is brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. That power which raised Christ himself from the dead. So we do know Christ in in the power, the power of this resurrection as the Holy Spirit has been granted to us. Now we may be tempted to think of these two knowledges, right? We know Christ in suffering, we know Christ in power. 
as non-overlapping, as if there's two parallel lines of the Christian life, and we constantly are going back and forth between these two, these two knowledges. For example, we may, we may think if we're walking through a particular trial, okay, this is the season of life where I know Christ in suffering. And then hopefully next year will be that season of life where I know Christ in power. And we just kind of go back and forth between these two paths. However, this is not at all how Paul wants us to think of these two um, knowledges of Christ. Rather, Paul wants us to view these two these two knowledges as basically two ways to view the same situation. We know Christ in power as we suffer. Or you could say it's precisely in our suffering that we know Christ in power. They mutually explain one another. Now some of you may know or may not know uh, the Los Angeles Lakers Star LeBron James is on the brink of winning his fourth NBA championship tonight, actually, right now. And if someone were to ask you in non-COVID time, I really want to see LeBron James do what he does best. I want to see him do what he gets paid millions of dollars to do. Where do I need to go? Now, theoretically, there's a million, a thousand options you could give that person. Tell them to go on a hike. You can tell them to go to church. A lot of bad answers, right? There's really one answer to that question. You go to the Staples Center. You go to any basketball stadium where LeBron James is scheduled to play. Because that's where you know LeBron's going to be doing what he does best. Play the game of basketball. Well, in a similar way, Paul is saying, you want to experience the resurrection power of Christ? Look to your suffering. Your suffering is like the stadium, the basketball court, as it were, where the resurrection power of Christ does its work. It's your suffering, that's the court, the stadium, where the power of Christ is manifested. That's what Paul's telling us here. You may be thinking, well, okay, that sounds great, but where's Paul saying that, especially in, in Philippians 3? If you look with me again at verse 10, Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Now that word and, that's connecting those two knowledges of Christ, can function a variety of ways. And here it's, it's explaining these two phrases. Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection is now explaining, and is, is using it in an explanatory way, to explain sharing in Christ's suffering. Therefore, Paul's saying, if you want to know more about Christ's power, look to your suffering. If you want your suffering explained, look to Christ's power. They mutually depend, they mutually explain one another. Again, if you'd like, uh, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, or you can just listen along as well. This is another one of those passages which explains exactly what Paul is trying to communicate here in a paragraph length rather than a sentence length. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as I read this passage, just listen for the relationship between knowing Christ in suffering and knowing Christ in power. Listen to how Paul uh, speaks about these, these two things. Paul says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now listen especially to what Paul says here. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What is the relationship? Jesus is saying, we experience suffering. We care about the body of death so that, for the very purpose of the resurrection life of Jesus being able to be manifested in our life. So I hope this teaching that Paul's giving us here gives us a a sort of perspective change as we experience the various hardships and sufferings that come our way. It's precisely in our suffering that we should expect Christ's power to show up in our life. In a lot of ways, this is another one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith. It's in the context of the hardships that we experience the power of Christ. So think of a particular hardship, a particular suffering that you're going through even right now. Name it in your head. Think of it. And God's word this evening is telling you that it's precisely in that situation that God's power will be manifested in your life. To sustain your faith, to nourish you, to prove his promises to you. It's in that situation in life. What response should we have to this this teaching of knowing Christ in in power as we suffer, essentially? We know Christ in power and in suffering. Paul would have us respond to this with joy and contentment. As we saw last week in chapter chapter 3 begins with this command to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I said last week, what that means is, Paul's wanting us to rejoice in our justification. But I also think that command um, touches upon our passage this evening as well. Even in the midst of the sufferings of this life, as we know Christ's power and suffering, we are also called to rejoice. We're also called to find contentment. And our last passage I want us to, uh, to either listen along or turn to is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-11. through 11. It's another one of those parallel texts where Paul is really saying this, uh, pretty much the exact same thing. And here we, we are instructed that we are to react with contentment um, as we go through this life. In this passage, you may know, Paul is talking about this thorn in the flesh that's been plaguing him. And this is a great source of suffering to him. Uh, we don't know what it is, but Paul's pleading with God that it would pass, that it would be taken away. And we see that God, in his providence, chooses uh, not to. And God's response is found in verse 9. He says this. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Again, this is Paul saying the exact same thing. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and Philippians 3, it's in the weaknesses, in the sufferings, that Christ's power is manifest. So this also teaches us that it's not wrong to ask God to take away our suffering, our hardships. Paul himself does it. But we know that every single day in which our suffering persists is another day in which Christ wants to show up in power to sustain us. Which is really good news. But you know what's Paul's response? He continues on. He says, Therefore, in light of this response of God to his pleading, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I would imagine most of us, all of us, would say that joy and contentment is not our initial reaction to hardships of life. It's not. I don't think it would be for Paul either. But let's consider... What brought about this response, this counterintuitive response from the Apostle Paul? And let's see if we can learn from his example. And Paul's contentment does not arise, and joy for that matter, does not arise simply from the fact that he's suffering. In the context of this passage, Paul's response of contentment only comes after he is told that his suffering is the playing court of God's power. That's why he can find contentment. That's why he can rejoice, because he knows when he is weak, then he is strong. So let me ask you this evening, are you finding joy and contentment in the midst of whatever hardship, suffering, difficulty that you're enduring? And yes, it's, it's right, it's good to lament, it's biblical, we're also called to press on to joy and contentment. Are you finding that in the midst of your various situations? And if not, is it because you have forgotten that your suffering is the playing court of the resurrection power of Christ? And the more we direct our minds on that realization, the more we'll be able to react with a spirit of joy and contentment with whatever our Heavenly Father chooses to send our way. Well, our knowledge of Christ does not end at his return. Rather, we read in this passage, it's strengthened, it's enhanced. It's indeed to this great day that Paul now turns to as we will one day know Christ in glory. We will know Christ in glory. And this is my Third, final, and brief point, so bear with me. We see this in verse 11. Paul says this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's pointing us forward to that glorious day where we will know Christ in consummated glory. When you read this, it may seem as if we're almost earning our resurrection. Again, it seems sort of conditional. However, when Paul says, by any means possible, I may attain, he's not, he's not casting doubt upon our future resurrection. He's saying that this is going to be a difficult life. Paul's not doubting whatsoever that those who have faith will get to that glorious day. He's just saying that the path that we walk is the justified 
does entail difficulties. We live in a fallen world. So before we can know Christ in consummated glory, we first need to know him as his power is made perfect in our weakness. That's what he's telling us. And our great hope is a hope that we will know Christ, yes, in glory, in consummated glory, which means all suffering and pain will be gone. It's just power. It's just glory. And the Bible repeatedly refers to us as pilgrims. That's the metaphor the Bible refers to us as, as pilgrims. And we are repeatedly told to look forward. Look forward to that day where we will know Christ in consummated glory. Don't forget who you are. You are a pilgrim people. You are not ultimately residents of this world. Recently, I read a study about uh, how runners, in, in fact, run faster when their eyes are looking forward rather than to the ground or to the side. So if you're actually competing in a race, if your eyes are fixed forward on that next runner, the finish line, or if you're just jogging casually, the, the mini goal of a stoplight or a tree, it's almost as if when your eyes are forward, it propels you forward. I think that really, in a lot of ways, explains what Paul's getting at here. He wants to keep us to keep our eyes forward on that great day where we will know Christ and consummate glory. But what oftentimes happens during the week, right, starting Monday morning uh, through Saturday, is our eyes tend to drift. We may start looking down at our feet and we're reminded, oh, I'm actually really tired. My feet hurt. This is hard. This pilgrimage is not easy. Or we might start looking off to the side and become discontent. Think of all the things we're missing out on because we're Christians. But this is precisely why we need the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters. Because it's the Lord's Day where we are reminded of who we are. Reminded of this great hope that is ours. And our gaze gets fixed, refixed, on what is ahead of us. As we hear the word preached. As we experience the sacraments uh, to our, uh, with our senses redirects our eyes on where we are going. And we are reminded that we are a pilgrim people. This, this reality is so important to stress, especially in our current, current uh, cultural uh, climate. As we look around us, and so many people are infatuated with bringing in this utopia in the here and now, this time of perfect justice and equity, and we recognize that we're sinners. That's not going to happen in this age. But we as a church, as Christians, actually have a sure and certain hope of a perfect utopia, of a new creation, in which perfection will reign. And the church is the closest foretaste. The Lord's Day is the closest foretaste of that coming new creation. And therefore, let us keep our eyes directed, fixed, Upon the hope that we have after this law. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Christ. We ask that your power would indeed be perfected in our weakness. Increase our longing for the day in which we will see him face to face in glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let us respond to what we have just heard.
by singing about how the Lord is indeed our refuge as we walk through the sufferings of this present age. Please stand and turn to 11b. We'll be singing stanzas 1 through 2. 11b, which is a setting of Psalm 11, stanzas 1 through 2.